So let's read our text for this week, uh, John 2, starting in verse 12. The wedding feast happened. Okay, now after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers were sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. That's where we're going today. It's fascinating. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you so much for the opportunity, Lord, to open your word and to declare its truth. Would you hide and stop any uh, selfish agenda that I might have to say things, to be accepted or approved by this crowd, or to, uh, in hopes of being important myself? Lord, would you be the one who is important? Would you be the one who is seen? Would you be the one who is active? Holy Spirit, we invite you here. Jesus, you're welcomed here. This is for you and about you and only comes through you. So would you truly come in this place? and inhabit this building and inhabit our hearts and reveal your truth, the truth, to us today. Lord, be with the ones who are curious about finding out more about Christianity in general. Would they be satisfied in their search today? Lord, those who are struggling with whether to believe you completely, they're sort of on a tightrope, so to speak, of of. of falling towards you and then falling away from you, Lord, would you satisfy them today? And Lord, would you be with those who are satisfied in you? Would you complete their satisfaction even more so today, their satisfaction in who you are? Lord, may no one hear the word of the truth of God declared today and be unchanged. Would none of us leave this place the same way we entered this place? I speak against that. That is the tool of Satan himself. So Holy Spirit, be active. Move here. In Christ's name, I ask these things. Amen. Amen. I'm excited to preach this text today. I hope you didn't have a pot roast going. We might stay here a while. This is going to be fun. Pot roast is something. Never mind. Okay. Um, I know a lot of you know what it is. A lot of you have no idea. All right. Uh, so we're going to start in verse 12 and move forward. You ready? After this, he, Jesus, went down to Capernaum with his mother, Mary, and his brothers, who would be his half-brothers. He would be the oldest, of course, and his disciples. These disciples being Philip, Nathaniel, Simon Peter, John the author, most likely, and Andrew. 
Of course, there could be an, another disciple picked up, but it's not recorded. But we do know most likely that these were the five with him at this point. And they stayed there in Capernaum for a few days. So Jesus' family stayed here but a few days because it wasn't too long later that it was going to be time to leave to go celebrate the, the Jewish Passover feast in downtown Jerusalem. So we have verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. The, the festival of Passover is when the, uh, the children of Israel commemorate the night when the angel of death came through, when they were under uh, the Pharaoh, uh, under Egyptian tyranny, and where, where if they put blood over the doorpost, when the angel of death came through, the firstborn was spared. But where there was no blood covering, the angel of death would not pass over and would take the life of the oldest in the home, the firstborn. And so what this was, was one of the plagues given to Pharaoh to convince him to let the children of Israel go, to be able to make their way to the promised land out of Egyptian rule, okay? So this is commemorated. This is remembered. Man, this was a big deal. Our exodus is a huge thing. So they came back to Jerusalem to celebrate this, and it, was, it took uh, seven, eight days to celebrate this one festival every year. And so he, Jesus, and his family and his entourage, his disciples, made their way to celebrate this. The story of the Passover, if you want to read it a little bit more, it's fascinating, is in Exodus 12. If you want to take note of that to explore a little bit more this week, I would encourage that. Verse 14, in the temple, Jesus found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Okay, this is within the temple, and this is important because the temple here in this context was known as the one place on earth where the human could experience firsthand the divine. It was a, a, a transcendent place. It was, it was a liaison of sorts between mankind and God Almighty. It was a very special place representing the presence of God. The cattle, the sheep, and the doves here were used in the sacrificial worship within the temple, especially for the, the worshipers who came any distance at all. It was a great privilege and even a convenience to be able to buy the animals to sacrifice there to, to seek atonement for their sin through the animal sacrifice, which goes back to the Old Testament law. So instead of having to bring all these animals with them from hundreds of miles, they could buy them there, okay? Uh, they wouldn't die along the way. And even if you did try to bring your own and they died along the way, you could buy them there. So this was a, a convenience and be able to purchase these animals on site rather than having to bring them in. And others who were sitting at the tables exchanging money were also providing a service for the people who came to worship. You see, there was several different types of currency from several different types of civilizations here represented in this first century. And so these guys would basically exchange whatever currency you had for the purest silver, which was the only currency that you could have to pay the temple tax. You couldn't pay with any other, especially Roman currency. It had to be the most purest silver, okay, Israel currency. And so they provided this service to exchange these things out. And of course, they, they had a certain percentage fee that they would charge you to do so. That's where it got a little tricky. 
So the money changers were there to convert the money to the approved currency and charging that percentage for their service. And Jesus did not approve of what he found when he enters the temple. Why would he not approve? Well, we'll see here. Verse 15 and 16, especially as a kid, desiring that hero that we see Jesus on the cross, I love that Jesus beats death. That is awesome. I love this story as still that boy in me loves to see someone just clean house. Okay? So I like this, that Jesus is flexing physically and he's flexing spiritually, metaphorically. This is a, a cool story for me. So he goes out, he sees this, and he makes a whip. And don't think of uh, what Jacob referred to as Indiana Jones whip uh, that's really long and, you know, you kind of throw it out. But it's one that was three to four feet long stick, okay, with leather straps that came off the end, okay? That, that's the type of whip um, that, that most believe he was, that he formed here. I don't know how long this would take, uh, I don't know. I mean, Jesus was part of creation in John 1, right? So it might have taken a, a thought. It might have taken an hour. Uh, I don't know. So he, he made a, a whip of cords, and he drove them all out of the temple. Okay? All. He drove them all out of the temple, and he goes into detail explaining this. With the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables and told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Imagine, imagine that. I was talking to Pastor Jake about this earlier today. It would be very similar to someone coming in here with a sledgehammer Okay? Busting out our windows, shattering our screens, busting our cool artwork, our soundboard, throwing a couple pews out the windows, smashing the speakers. We'd be like, what is happening here? And who's going to stop this guy? Oddly enough, that's not their reaction. Of course, what's happening here is, but who's going to stop him? It's not recorded that they're actually considering that, which is interesting. We'll see this. Jesus is identifying the temple with a sacred place of knowing and experiencing and fellowshipping with God, God the person. And his complaint is not that they're guilty of, of cruel business practices, of, of taking advantage of certain percentages of someone's money and addressing their ethical life. Rather, he is shocked and frustrated that they're even there to begin with in the temple, making himself, making the temple a, a, a place of trade rather than worship. You see, they have commercialized the sacred place of knowing and experiencing God. The temple itself is the focal point of where God and God fears meet. The temple is where God accepts believers because of a bloody animal sacrifice. The sacred grounds of the temple had been set apart or sanctified, if you will. They'd been set apart for worship, and they had become a flea market for greed. Jesus' physical disposition here, his, his action was forceful, and it was just. 
He had every right as the son of God in the temple of God to do this very thing. And it's certainly not easy to drive out these oxen and sheep without a cord, a a whip of cords of some sort. So he's furious here, but he's not sinful in his response. Contrary to my flannel graph, anybody know what flannel graph is? If you don't know what flannel graph is, raise your hand. Okay, flannel graph was the church's great idea in the late 70s and 80s of putting faces to to disciples and Jesus and the boat and the ark and animals and a whip. and, And you would have this board. It was a visual aid of flannel. And you would stick these characters up, right? And it, it was awesome. I mean, as a kid, you were just like, can I put Jesus up there? You know, can I put the whip in his hands? And, you know, we would always, every time we went across this story, it was always a fight to see who could put the whip on the bottom of one of the mean men. Like, we just wanted to see Jesus hitting the men. Like, that's, let's do that. Let's do that, you know. The bottom meaning your seat, uh, not the bottom of the flannel graph. Um, and contrary to that image that I have to fight, okay, the whip was not made for people, okay? Jesus designed the whip for the animals, the livestock, okay? So it's, it's not like he's hitting people here. It's the animals driving them out, okay? Here's the focal point of Jesus' authority questioned. Here is where the cleansing of the temple that Jesus is coming in to cleanse it out there, the, the, uh, the onlookers, the, the Jewish leaders, the representatives there of the temple are wanting to know his credentials on what authority, on what grounds do you have to do this? You see, Jesus was not furious because of the greed and the worship of money that was driving the commerce and, and the money changing. But he was most angry and disappointed because those involved were cloaking their greed and the worship of their money with religion, even using the law of God, even using the Old Testament for reasoning for doing such things. This is what drove at the heart of Jesus. And it's clear throughout all the gospels that greed is prevalent. That sin of greed is prevalent in the lives of the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders. And they're constantly disguising it and masking it as religion and piety and holiness that Jesus saw. And he exposes it for what it really is. Consider uh, Luke 16 when Jesus is addressing the Pharisees. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Point blank. To the Pharisees. Again, to the Pharisees in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self indulgence. Woe to you. With the Pharisees and Sadducees present, he turns to his disciples in Luke 20 and says to the disciples, Beware of the scribes. Who like to talk, who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast, who devour widows' homes and houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. 
You see, Jesus recognized here that the place of worship and prayer had been turned into the place of commerce and greed, cloaked in self-righteousness, cloaked in religion. Their greed was fronted by this noble religion. The question that hit me in the face and the question I will share with you all, does this sound familiar? Cloaking sin with performance, with religion, with using the right words, with trying to be noticed by the right people at the right time to be able to disqualify any grounds that they could confront you on something that you know you did that they might have seen you do. Self-righteousness. Being born and bred here in the religious, moralistic, legalistic South, okay? I know this. And a confession personally, this is my default setting. Personally, I can go days, weeks, months, and years cloaked in religion and look the part and talk the part. But within my heart is sin and greed. And I've got to get really strategic about how to cover that up. Because deep inside of me, I fear that if people know me, they will not like me. And I'm not running to the gospel, okay? I'm running from Jesus to the cloak of my self-righteousness. Because if I can't authentically be satisfied in Christ alone, by golly, I've got to act like it. I've got to have everybody in the world think this way. I'm a daddy. I'm a pastor. I'm a church planner. I can't let people know who I really am. Does this sound familiar to who you are and to what, what's going on in your world? Is there a fear that, man, if people really knew the real you, that that's a scary thought? The gospel says that we can approach Jesus as we are, and he will send his Holy Spirit to transform us within. And we don't need to ignore our weaknesses and our tendencies, but we need to give them to him because it's in our weaknesses and our tendencies that are sinful that he uses for good. And for greatness, this is the transforming hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So before we just simply move past this little segment in our time today, again, does this sound familiar? And my fear, my fear is that people all across this room will think of others instead of themselves right here. My fear is that you, right now, you are thinking of somebody else rather than yourself. This is who we are, especially in such a legalistic, moralistic, do-good city. I mean, our city is so good that the homeless have meals every single time of the day. 
Speaking with homeless people, they say there's no better place to be homeless than Nashville because you're never hungry. We're doing good. But are we cleaning the plate and the cup on the outside and leaving the inside dirty? Are we, are we looking religious, but inside are we full of greed and self-righteousness? And is there a fear deep within that drives us to do good because we know that at our heart we're bad? My prayer is that you would see this tendency and that you would run to Jesus and see yourself completely satisfied in him and find that he is all-sufficient, that he is good enough and he is big enough to fulfill your deepest longings. Run to him with me to see this, okay? Don't think of someone else. I mean, just, just flatter me for a second and think of yourself as this type of individual. And let's take that to Jesus, okay? And let's see him change us. All right. Verse 17. His disciples, Jesus' disciples, remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So they're going back to Psalm 69, verse 9, where it says, for zeal for your house has consumed me. So it's here that the disciples, uh, their faith in Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah continues to be strengthened as they are given eyes to see and ears to hear when Jesus acts and when Jesus speaks, especially when Jesus refers to himself from the Old Testament. When he begins to point out that he is that long-awaited Messiah and he uses the Old Testament, like Psalm 69.9, it brings such confirmation to their hearts that, yeah, this He's referring to himself as that one, as the greater son of David. This is who he is, and it builds their faith. Jesus' cleansing of the temple here testifies to his concern for pure worship and a right relationship with God. Fundamentally, foundationally, that's what this is pointing towards. Verse 18. So the Jews, speaking specifically of the temple authorities here, said to him, what sign do you show for us to do, uh, for, for doing these things? What, what sign do you show for doing such things here? As the legal authorities, these Jews had every right to question the qualifications of someone who had taken such bold action in the temple area. As speaking with this, I mean, gosh, I, I was speaking with Jacob about it. I think that if that happened, if someone did come in here, that you would be hard-pressed to beat me to that person to bring them to the ground. If someone came in here to destroy or hurt you or this place, I'd be pretty quick. I'd be Johnny on the spot, okay? I always sit with my face towards the door at a restaurant. I'm always got a, a plan. I've always got like, okay, if this happens, I can do this. Like, I'm, it's, like I'm a, it's like I'm a superhero in a movie, and I, I'm just thinking that everyone's watching me all the time. They're like, what's he going to do here? What's, he gonna, what's his plan, you know? Like someone can read the subscript of my thoughts. But they don't act this way. They don't, they don't think we have to apprehend this man. They don't think we have, we have to tackle this guy. We have to, man, who is he? He just flipped over my table and drove out these animals and dumped all that silver. I want to go in there, man. We can maybe pick up some more silver that's not ours and put it in our bag and no one will know that we took theirs. Like, but no, they, they leave. They're out of the temple 
and this dialogue is happening outside of the temple. The temple is empty. He said he, he drove out all of them, including the livestock. And then he set the birds free. Like, they paid to have those things captured for this. And get out, you know. It's like, like, how can he do this? On what authority? Instead of tackling him, they're wanting to talk with him. The fact that they didn't have him immediately arrested speaks to the fact that they must have suspected that there was something unique about this guy. There's something special about him. Why wouldn't they not try to arrest this man immediately? It either speaks to the fact that they suspected something special in this guy, or it points to the fact that they knew down deep, down deep, that they were doing things wrong, ethically and biblically. And so they didn't want to simply arrest this fellow. Certainly one of those two things or a combination of those two things had to play a part here in why they wanted a dialogue instead of arrest him. Notice here that these rulers, they, they don't display any, any personal reflection or self-examination of what Jesus just did. They're not even thinking about his comments on his house as a house of prayer and not for money-making. They don't even address that. They're simply like, hey, who are you to say this? What's, what's your credentials? On, on what authority? Where's a sign for this? Who are you? Rather than being concerned with the truth of what Jesus just declared regarding right worship and purity before God, they were concerned with questions of his authority. They are not repentant and they are not humbled. They were asking the wrong set of questions. Again, I ask myself this, and I ask it to you. Isn't this how we behave as well? Isn't this how we act and respond? Rather than allowing truth to change us, we strategically justify and explain away our situation, our sin. We justify our behavior and our actions and our reactions because of what they did and what the vibe was and who was doing this. And I was tired, missing the entire point of being confronted with the truth. We do this most strategically when dealing with the discipline from God, the confrontation from others, the conviction from the Holy Spirit, and then when we find truth in Scripture. We so often think, just as I, my fear was just a while ago, that we would see the Pharisees as those cloaked in religion but hiding their greed. Like, we, we just sweep over that. Like, that's not me. That's so-and-so and so-and-so. That's exactly what I'm talking about. We do, we're professionals at that. We can go through the Christian life unscathed. We're so good at this. Our goal is to never be convicted. Our goal is to, is to, to so convince ourselves by way of justifying our behavior and our settings that we never sin. 
And we believe that the longer we behave that way and justify that way, we will end up believing this and we will live our whole life in sin only to realize it too late. You and I are professionals at this. This is so easy for us, especially those who are raised in a moralistic, legalistic culture. My prayer is that we would receive the truth as difficult and as inconvenient as it may be and allow it to change us. Change is never comfortable and convenient. Love and change are two things that are never convenient and always difficult, very costly. But if you don't have to worry about change, if you just have to worry about cloaking and disguising as a changed person, then you can fit in safe environments, you can fit in with friendly people, and you can convince yourself that you're really not that bad because there's others who do such things as steal and destroy things. And man, you're a good guy. You give to the poor. You help, you help under the bridge feed the homeless. You're not that bad. And we believe this lie. So these men were demanding some sort of miraculous sign for Jesus to prove his authority. And Jesus knew that their hearts were hardened and that they did not have eyes to see or hearts to believe. Because if the authorities had eyes to see, the cleansing of the temple was already a sign that they should have taken note of from the Old Testament, just as the disciples did. Oh, Psalm 69. Yeah, not that Psalm 69 was around like the text was, the, the caption, the title, the, the reference number wasn't, so they wouldn't have said Psalm 69. Sorry, just trying to get too specific there. But they would have, that, that psalm would have come in their heart and their mind. This is the Messiah. This is the greater son of David. But they see it, and they have a total different response. This is the first recorded confrontation of Jesus and the Jewish leaders. The first of many here in the book of John. And, of course, they escalate more and more and more until the point of his murder on the cross. But this is just the first. The Pharisees addressed Jesus in a very similar fashion in Matthew 12. When some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, uh, Teacher, we, see, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it, to that generation, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. From their hardness of heart and inability to believe in and receive the truth Jesus is speaking, they ask for a sign, and he responds that his death and his resurrection will be the all-sufficient sign, pointing to the fact that he is the Messiah and that he will not give in to their deceitful request. I had a conversation not too long ago with a, a, a business owner here in Germantown, and he, we were talking about Jesus, and, and he says, you know, I get that Jesus died and beat death, 
I don't have a problem believing this. But I have a problem believing that Jonah was swallowed by a fish and was thrown up three days later towards the city that he was to go. I said, you're, you're telling me that you, you have a problem with Jonah and the whale, but you don't have a problem with Jesus beating death? He was like, no, I get it. Jesus, Jesus beat death. I totally believe that. I'm like, well, then how do you not believe? Like, doesn't that seem? He's like, I just can't get it. And so we dialogue about this, and, and then I, I get to the point where I, I, I explain to this guy, if you believe, as I was sharing this with Jacob earlier, if you believe that Jesus died on the cross, and you believe that Jesus beat death, then you should have no problem believing anything else in Scripture. Because that is the most extreme <coughs> miracle, the most grand miracle, the most prophesied and documented miracle, both in the Bible and extra-biblical sources, those historians around this time of first century Jerusalem. And so then he, but he still just couldn't. He's like, I just can't, I can't, I can't. Jesus is saying my resurrection, my death and resurrection will be the pinnacle point It'll be the sign, the miracle that says everything else about me is true. That's the point of this dialogue here with Jesus and these other men. This sign manifests the glory and authority of Jesus in a magnificent way as we see even in John 10. Jesus says, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down willingly in many translations. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now to destroy or to desecrate the temple or any other place of worship was called to be a capital offense in the Greco-Roman world. So that brought out the next question. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? Am I, am I hearing you right, Jesus? And so this even points to their, their misunderstanding of, of them simply looking at the material, the physical, the natural, and they totally miss what Jesus is speaking of. They didn't have ears to hear. They didn't have eyes to see. They didn't have hearts to believe. And then John gives us commentary here explaining that what Jesus was referring to was his own body, the body in which the word became flesh, John 1. Verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body, the body of where the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So it is the, the human body of Jesus that uniquely manifests the Father. It is the, the human body of Jesus that becomes the focal point of the manifestation of God to man. It is the human body of Jesus that is the living abode of God here on earth. It is the, the human body of Jesus that is the fulfillment of all the temple meant 
and is the center of all true worship. In this temple, the ultimate sacrifice would take place. And within three days of death and burial, Jesus Christ, the true temple, would rise from the dead. The temple itself pointed forward to a better and final meeting point between God and human beings. The temple stood as a place that, that was transcendent, that was the place lifted up and built on earth to join humanity to the divine. Much like the cross replacing the temple, Christ suspends himself, built up above the earth, suspended there between the humanity and the divine, saying, I am where the presence of God can be found. I am the one that you are seeking in worshiping this temple. I am that temple. I am that God. I'm the face of him. I'm the manifestation of him. I am God incarnate. He was declaring his deity. I am the temple, the temple here representing his body. He not only cleansed the temple, Jesus replaced the temple, fulfilling its purposes. The Jewish leaders had missed this point entirely. It's like trying to watch a Superman movie and missing the whole character of Superman. If you just took all that dealt with Superman out of that movie and then watched that movie, that's what, the, that's what these Jewish leaders were doing. They were trying to figure out why is this important, what is this about, without considering that Jesus is the main actor here. They didn't get it. The disciples got it. But these men did not have the faith, the eyes, the ears, the heart to understand what Jesus was talking about. Christ is the temple, and all men are commanded to come to him in order to worship and serve the one true God. Jesus declares this in John 14, 6. He says, I am the way. I am not a way. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man... No man, the temple, we go to the temple to get to God, right? It's the transcendent place. No man comes to the Father except through, used to be the temple, except through me. I am that way to him. I am the life. I am that truth. You can't get to, to where you're trying to go in that temple except through me. I am the greater temple. Jesus has come to replace the function of the temple, he being the place to personally meet with God. Jesus becoming the new and more intimate place to meet with God in spirit and in truth. Verse 22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So written long after the fact, John writes these things out. And as he's writing, he's like, oh, yeah, I remember when this happened. We totally did not get this one. Man, whew, we get it now. He's the first one to admit that he didn't get it. The other disciples didn't understand it. It was only after Jesus was raised from the dead that they grasped this concept completely. And this helps me. This helps me see that it's okay to have simple faith to follow Jesus without having to have all my questions answered and having, not having to have it all figured out yet. But following was simple, simple, childlike 
faith. Jesus said that it's that childlike faith that he's looking for. That simple, I believe you faith. The scribes, on the other hand, were trying to have all their questions answered. They were trying to have, try, trying to have all doubt removed before they had faith. But faith is present where there is most doubt. But they didn't want there to be any doubt in order for them to have faith. And that's just contradictory. You can't have faith if you know it all. So one, for those of us who love knowledge, let's be okay with that. Let's be okay for those who are like theologians and love reading all this stuff and don't get why people can't believe like you believe and you're all about arguing. Be okay with simple faith and be okay with others not understanding it all and be okay and please recognize that you aren't the Bible answer man. That lady, you don't know it all. That sir, you don't know it all. And if you want to be that guy, you would fit much more in here with the Pharisees rather than the childlike faith of the disciples. May God help us here. Yeah, definitely. Notice here in closing that there are two responses to Jesus. His disciples believe in him, and as their faith in him is strengthened, they follow him with greater devotion. And then notice the Jewish leaders. They're arrogant, and they do not accept what Jesus is saying and doing. He is threatening their preconceived notions of religion and moralism, and they are testing him in response. Rather than following him, they are testing him, asking for more proof of his authority. And they're asking for him to convince them when their hearts are hard and beyond convincing, and they really don't even want to know the answer. They already have an answer. They've already made up their mind. So, another question I came to here is how am I responding to Jesus? How are you responding to Jesus even right now? Are you demanding more proof? Is there something you're waiting on for someone maybe to forgive you or to reach out to you or, or ask forgiveness for something that's been done against you and then you will believe and follow? Are you waiting for that wife or husband or job or car to be given? And then once that's given, then I'll believe. Because that's, that's kind of like what I'm asking of God. God, if you're real, then do this, and then I'll follow you. Be careful. Place your hope not in a sign, but in Jesus. And even when you're seeking God, don't seek his hand as much as what he can provide for you, as much as his face of his glory, of being enthralled with who he is, not what he can simply give you on this earth. This is what we need to hear. This is hard to hear. My prayer is that if you have ears that you would hear this, that, the, that your hearts will be open to what Jesus is saying here and not bypass this as just another typical Sunday, another typical sermon, bypassing the conviction, walking out these doors and living as if there is no God at all. Practical atheist. You say there's a God, but you live as if there's not. May God help us fight this tendency to cloak our sin instead of confess our sin. Closing with 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. 
for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Here's my prayer. Here's what that has to do with this, okay? My prayer is that you would welcome the Holy Spirit into your life. That you would welcome the Holy Spirit into your life to turn the tables of performance over, to, to empty the bags of our idolatry, of our search for control, our pursuit for power, our desire for wealth, our passion for sexual immorality, that he would convict us of our wrong, of our sin, that he would reveal to us our tendency to pretend to be something that we're not and to give us courage to confess our sin and boldness to approach one another in brotherly love. And that he would point us to Jesus being the all-sufficient satisfier of our souls. This is my prayer regarding this text today. My prayer is that you would allow Jesus, that you would allow God the Father, that you would allow the Holy Spirit to enter your heart, your temple, and give him the whip and say, drive out what is bad. Drive out what is sinful. Drive out what is greedy. Reveal to me what that is. I want to confess it. I want to repent of it. I want to change this. And then put back in this temple what you want. Take out what is me, John 3.30, that he may increase and we may decrease. Take out what's me and add more of you. That's what I want. It's inconvenient, and to be honest, I don't want that. Because I like being able to balance back and forth. I like being able to have a good cloak. But as inconvenient and as unfun as it might be in the moment, I know that greater joy will come because of that. I know that a deeper-seated satisfaction that wealth or the lack of wealth cannot take away. I know that in you, regardless of the amount of control or the lack of control I have, I can be satisfied. I was talking to a man on the beach named Larry, one of the 15 people we saw on the beach. And I talked to him, I don't know, probably 40 minutes He's probably 62 years old. He's an Army veteran. Uh, I'm sorry, a Navy veteran. And uh, we were talking about all things, of course, politics. And I mean, it was nuts, all the stuff we were talking through. And uh, I love it, man. Everybody's got opinions. This is cool hearing them. But, but I remember talking to him about the gospel and trying to point to the fact that regardless of your wealth or the lack of wealth, Jesus is still the hope. Because if you place your hope in wealth, you'll still be hungry for more. There's a lot of people who have a lot of money that are miserable right now. There's a lot of people who have no money that for some reason have cause to rejoice. And they are all but broke. There are some that are broke. There are some that 10 years ago they had a nice house. Today they're homeless. And yet they're still happy. Some people are still happy. And more often than not, it's those people that have found Jesus, that regardless of situations of how wealthy you are, how poor you are, how much control you have, how little control you have, Jesus is the hope that changes everything. Jesus is there to be that all-sufficient source of comfort, that North Star, so to speak, that regardless of what happens, as long as he is here, I'm okay. Man, 
I wish Larry would get this and I wish you would get this. I wish that I would functionally believe this. That I don't have to keep looking at other things. I don't have to have a big church. I don't have to have all the church's financial needs taken care of. That regardless of if those things are true or not, my hope, we see it all the time, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. May this be our hearts. May this be our posture. And may when we walk out this door today, may we leave different. May we shed our cloaks of moralism and performance and allow the greed to come forth and the sin and the sexual idolatry and the alcoholism and the addiction and all this be seen for what it is. May we stop lying to ourselves. It is a big issue. It needs to be confessed. We need to confront it. We need to repent of it and stop it and turn to Jesus as the ultimate hope and satisfaction of what we're looking for in those other things. And may the Axis Church family be a very safe place to expose such things. Knowing that we will receive grace and mercy like Jacob was talking about, those new mercies. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this truth. May we receive it like the disciples. May we not excuse it or question it as the Pharisees. Lord, please help us and be with us. Help us shed our cloaks of performance, of moralism, of legalism, of religion that is not helpful. And then we run to you. Confess our sin. Seeing that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. Yeah. In your name I pray. Amen.